is so good to be here with you today. It is just awesome to be in the house of the, the Lord. And, um, you know, it's been a little while since I've been here. You know, I came back last, last month, and, or last week, not last month. Don't let anyone tell you dad brain isn't a real thing, okay? But I haven't been around. I think, Jenny, are you here? Where'd she go? Here she is. Jenny has our newest little addition to First NAS. So she's coming out now. So this is Axel James. <laughs> so for those of you who can't see a really good look at him, there's a larger picture of him, but he's just our little bundle of joy. We are so, just so overwhelmed and so blessed by the faithfulness of God. For those of you who don't know, just a, a brief glimpse of our story. We've been married for 14 years now, and for the first 13 years of that, just had kind of been on this this road, this journey of adoption and, and trying different things. And, and uh, God kept saying, kind of wait, and things weren't working out. And uh, then this past year, in a matter of basically a whirlwind of six months, we went from the end of January to getting a call to, you know, beginning of July, he was in our arms and we were holding him and, and we are just so blessed. So, you know, can I go ahead and hold him for a little bit? Just let you, oh, don't wake up. You're okay. Oh, goodness. Oh, but you're okay. Hey, there you go. I just love this little guy. He's so sweet. And I'm convinced he's never going to do anything wrong. So, <laughs> you know, so I'm going to give him back to, to mommy, but we just... Oh. <laughs> God bless you. But we are just so grateful. And if you ever want proof that God answers prayer, just look at little Axel here. So, well, thank you for coming out. And Jenny's just been wonderful. She's been awesome. One more picture to show. You know, there's, you can never have too many pictures of a baby, but we are just so blessed beyond measure. But we've been spending the last month or so getting to know him. He's already, it's hard to believe, a month and, and a week old. He's, he's gone from when we took him home from the hospital. He was about seven and a half pounds to now he's 10 and a half. So he's eating well. He's, he's doing all right. But we are just so blessed to have him. Well, Pastor Tim is away. He's on vacation. And so uh, we, are, we are blessed um, to still be able to meet and to gather. And he asked me if I'd be willing to, to preach. And so I'm here kind of continuing this series on being faithful while living in a world of fear. Uh, and going through, uh, kind of just recapping the last several weeks, because Pastor Tim has done an awesome job of just walking us through these heroes of the faith, these people who uh, exemplified what it means to be faithful while living in a world of fear. In week one, he, he talked about Elijah and uh, just kind of focused on this idea that God has always had a faithful people uh, during times of fear. And that our seasons of pain can lead us into places of total dependence and unconditional obedience to God. In week two, we kind of looked at Abram or Abraham and Lot and the importance of choices that we make and how our choices matter, uh, especially because people are watching us. And even the little choices that seem insignificant can set us on a trajectory um, that can really have major impacts and outcomes on our lives. And so uh, he also challenged us with this question in those choices to, to think about who 
Who are we influencing for Christ? And then in, in week three, last week, he, he took a look at Job with us. And uh, kind of looking at how in, in Job chapter two, it seems like everything in Job's world is crashing down in on him. And then, but looking at chapter 42 and how God restores him and, and everything. And, the, and that, that challenge to never give up on a God who has never given up on you. And that life, <clears throat> excuse me, life is hard, but God is still God. Well, today we're going to continue that series and we're going to take a look at uh, Daniel and his three friends, or as I've kind of grown to call them this past week while studying this, Daniel and his three amigos. You know, I mean, they're just, there's these four examples of faith um, and what it means to be faithful while living in a world of fear, particularly what it means to be faithful to God while living in exile. All right, but before we get into that, will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for your love, for your faithfulness, that even though Satan should buffet and trials come, that you are with us, that it is well with our souls, God, and that your presence remains. And so, God, I, I just pray that you will speak through me and, and into our lives, that you would transform us by the power of your word and, and, and the presence of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this concept of, of exile is basically just being in a strange land or, or environment. And often it's, it's not of your own choosing. You didn't choose to go into this place. You, something forced you there and usually something pretty, pretty unpleasant, you know, um, for me, it was moving to Indiana. You know, I think I've said before, I fought being a Hoosier for, for years. Um, you know, love makes you do crazy things. You know, my wife was born and raised in Kokomo. And, and you know, for me, Indiana was always that place that was in the way of getting to where I was going. I was born in Ohio, lived in Illinois, had family in both states. So Indiana was always that long stretch we had to cross. For me, it literally was the crossroads of America. I wasn't coming to stay. I was just passing through, and I was okay with that. You know, and even when I lived in Illinois, I was only six miles from the border of Indiana. And I'm convinced, like, growing up, see, if I have any prejudice against you Hoosiers, it's because of my parents. Like, any bad drivers, it was always, they must be from Indiana. And living in Kokomo, I have a tendency to agree they were right. But, you know, I mean, that's okay. I love you all. I, I will gladly say I'm a Hoosier now, especially looking at how Illinois is. For those of you watching in Illinois, I, I'm not wrong. Come on. But, you know, it is, it is just, you know, for a while I would always think like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Hoosier, you know, I'm not from here, you know, I'm kind of in, in exile, you know, and everything, but I've gotten used to that. But when we look in scripture, we see exile is actually a common theme. You could even argue that it's almost, the, it almost is so common that it's the norm for the people of God. You know, I mean, when you look at Abraham and how God calls him from the land of his family and tells him to just go until I tell you to stop. And so he just goes and he walks and he's in this foreign land trying to, to establish his, his family. When you have Joseph in the, in the Bible who is sold into slavery by his brothers and taken off into Egypt and all the trials that come from him being there in exile. And even then after, you know, he, he is 
you know, God raises him up to a position of power and influence in, in Egypt and, and, you know, the, the Hebrews multiply and they're becoming numerous that then Pharaoh comes along and enslaves them all. And, and so they're in exile in this land where before they were thriving, but now they're slaves until God sends Moses to bring them out. Uh, even, even looking at, you know, the time of Jesus in the New Testament, even though the Jews are in Israel, they're in their, you know, promised land and in their home country, they're under Roman occupation. So it's almost like they're, they're in this hostile environment, even as they're in their homeland. And of course, as we're looking today at Daniel and, and his three friends and, and they're being exiled to Babylon, all right, it's this common theme, and I think if we were to look at where we find ourselves in America today, I think we could probably identify with this a little bit. We could identify with this idea of being in exile, of being in an environment that is hostile towards God and his people. Right? To understand what I mean by that, we're going to have to go back to around the year 300 AD and a guy by the name of Constantine, who was the Roman emperor at that time. And Constantine was the first emperor who basically said it was not illegal to be a Christian. You know, there was the Edict of Milan in 313, which basically legalized Christianity and protected it. And, and so there was no longer, you know, could Christians be persecuted simply for being Christians. And that was awesome. That was great. That was a good thing. But with that too, Constantine kind of did a little bit more. He didn't just make it not illegal to be a Christian, but he had a major influence in a lot of the, the, the policies and workings of the church and, and some of the councils that happened at that time and all of these different things to the point where this idea of Christendom was, was born, where kind of Christian, Christianity became sort of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the state religion, you know, for, for Europe and by extension, all the areas under European influence. And so you had this idea that if you met someone, it was probably pretty safe to assume that they were a Christian, that they had an understanding of the faith. And so some of us in, in America today can remember a time where that was true here as well. You know, where if you were to walk up to someone, they at least had a basic understanding or working knowledge of the Bible and what it said. They understood the Ten Commandments. They respected that. They respected, you know, people going to church. They knew that was a right and good thing to do. But over time, that's, that's shifted to the point where now you could say we live in a post-Constantinian or post-Christian world, right, where the world we live in no longer does the church enjoy this place of privilege. I'll say it that way. You know, when you meet someone, you can no longer make a base assumption that they would identify as a Christian. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the world we live in now. And I've seen it in, in youth ministry when I first started some, you know, 18 so years ago. You know, I can remember even then, you know, organizations and schools and sports and all these different things kind of starting to creep in and starting to schedule things on Wednesday night when Wednesday night had always been carved out as that's youth group night and a lot of things didn't interfere with that. Well, that eventually went away to now uh, a lot of sports and things schedule events on Sundays where it's just like, eh, not everyone goes to church, not everyone really 
cares, it's okay to do things on Sunday. That's fine. Instead of setting that time aside as this is sacred and we respect the church and we assume that people do. So that's the world we live in where we see these shifts happening. And while some people lament this passing and some people fight to help the church regain this place of privilege, I, I would say that it's not all bad because it frees us to really live as the people God calls us to live. It frees us to be the church and be the kingdom of God and be different without having to rely on the endorsement of, of the state. And so we're going to, to look into this. Now, before we dive in, I want to I just have a couple of disclaimers. First off, I realize that talking about the Church of America in a time of exile right now is a limited metaphor, okay? What we experience and go through is nothing compared to what it was like to live in exile for those that we're going to read about in the Bible or those that live in countries where uh, they suffer real persecution, so our caution is not to equate inconveniences with persecution, right? So we just need to make sure that we're, we're aware of that. In no way am I saying like what we do because, you know, a kid can't go to youth group because, you know, they have a ball game is nothing compared to the threat of being thrown in a fiery furnace, okay? We're just gonna, you know, lay that groundwork there. But it does force us to ask this question, how are we to live, you know, for so long and for so many people, there was this idea that just, you know, living as a Christian in America was, was an easy thing, but it's getting more and more difficult. And so we have this question, how are we to live? And so we can look at Daniel and his friends for guidance on that because they're experiencing exile and, and a real sense of hopelessness and loss and fear about the future, right? Because in their world, Assyria has already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it. Right? And then in the year 605, King Nebuchadnezzar comes in with the Babylonian army, army and conquers Jerusalem and takes back some of its, its strongest and finest and smartest and, and members of the royal family, and he brings them back to Babylon. And Daniel and his friends were part of that group. And so they've been ripped out of their home and taken to this completely foreign land that is hostile towards them. And then not 20 years later, Babylon comes back into Jerusalem and destroys the city and leaves the temple in ruins. And so Daniel is writing to these people who are, have experienced all of this, are living in exile with, with seemingly no hope in sight. But Daniel comes in to offer hope. And these first six chapters of Daniel where we're going to be spending our time really kind of tell us, you know, what life is like in a hostile environment towards the people of God. Because in Daniel 1, you have Daniel and his friends taken into exile and challenged right off the bat with whether or not they will defile themselves by eating this food that is placed before them. And whether they'll choose to eat of this food which uh, will defile them or stand by their personal convictions and their identity as the people of God. And we have this challenge. In chapter 2, we have this test where Daniel is, is challenged to not only interpret a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar's, but even tell him what the dream is. Uh, and he has to, to rely on God to give him this, this knowledge and this wisdom. In chapter 3, the, the famous story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace because they won't bow down to this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has, has made and how God miraculously rescues them. 
Chapter four is this amazing tale about how King Nebuchadnezzar gets so full of pride and, and, and full of himself that God basically sends him another vision that Daniel interprets and says, hey, you're gonna lose your mind and lose your kingdom and go off into the wilderness and, and run around like a wild animal. And it happens. And then King Nebuchadnezzar then comes back to his senses and his kingdom is restored and, and he you know, recognizes God's power and authority. And in chapter five, the writing on the wall where King Belshazzar, King Nebuchadnezzar's gone, King Belshazzar comes in and he's having a party and mocking God by using utensils and cups and things that were uh, sacred and, and taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And he's using them for his party. And so this hand shows up out of nowhere and writes these words on the wall that Daniel has to come in and interpret and tell him, you know what, you've been weighed, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom ends tonight. And it's done. And then finally in chapter six, where Daniel is facing this threat because of his allegiance to God and unwillingness to pray to anyone other than God, where he is thrown in a den of lions. And so we have these stories where time and time again, there's this threat and this fear from living in a land that is hostile towards the people of God. And yet God shows his faithfulness. But before we get to that, we need to recognize that a major theme of this book is that God's people will suffer in this world. You know, that's why Jesus, you know, later on will tell his disciples in this world, you will have troubles. Not when, if you have troubles, not, you know, you might have troubles, you know, like, yeah, troubles might come, you know, you might be okay, you might not, I don't know. It's, you will have trouble, you will suffer. You know, the second half of the book of Daniel, which we're not looking at today, but it's full of these fantastic visions of these horrific beasts rising up and causing such chaos and destruction in the world. And they represent the kingdoms and superpowers of the world. And so in this world where such beasts seem to be able to just do as they please, as they rage, they, they, they try to force God's people into submission, try to force God's people to compromise their faith and, and threaten them with death if they don't. But as we will see, regardless of how things look at the time, God's people can trust that God is still on his throne. That earthly kingdoms come and go, but God's kingdom is eternal. There is never a time where God's kingdom is not here. And we can live into that truth and press into that truth and hold on to that truth as an anchor of our faith. So let's dive into some lessons that we can learn of how to live faithfully in exile. Some, some things we can pull from these four Jews and how they live their lives and the example they set for us on how we can live faithfully to God in exile, in an environment that is hostile to God's people. And first off, we just have to, again, hold on to that truth that God's kingdom is forever. This is foundational. This, if anything else is being said in the book of Daniel, it's this. It is this truth in Daniel 6, 26, it says, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. And that's such an amazing truth because we have to hold on to that because culture tries to tell us otherwise. 
See, culture tries to assimilate us. Culture tries to, to form us into its image. Right? And we see that present in this story of Daniel. In the very first chapter, when they're first taken to Babylon, that is what is at stake, is where they will place their identity. They're given new names. And what's interesting about this is that their names have such powerful significance. Right? And our names are our identity. Like if, you know, someone wants to know who you are, you always tell them your name first. Right? That's, that's how you identify yourself. And so for these four Jews, their names had deep significance. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael, who is like God. And Azariah, God helps. Their names, their Hebrew names were tied with a profound faith and trust in God. So to change their identity, they're given new names of Belshazzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that all include references to different Babylonian gods. Almost in a way to, to mock their God and to try and change their identity and to say, you know, okay, so your name means, you know, who is like God? Well, you know, we'll make your name mean who is like Achan or whatever. You know, they're going to change their names. And so they're trying to change their identity and break them and assimilate them into this new society. And this question of food that's put before Daniel, you know, where he has to take a stand and say, I'm not going to defile myself by eating this. You know, let me eat just vegetables and water and, and my friends as well. And, and we'll see, you know, how it turns out. And, and there's a lot of debate. There's some debate on why these foods would defile them. You know, there's some, some idea that, you know, hey, these foods were first offered to pagan gods, and so that might have been part of it. Uh, you know, more likely it's probably that it included a lot of unclean animals that were part of the Mosaic law that were, were forbidden for them. And that was a huge part of their identity. I think also there's this idea that Daniel was probably wanting to identify and do this as an act of solidarity with the others that were in exile and were suffering and not able to eat the choicest food. And so almost like this sense of mourning where he, he was identifying with his people as the people of God. And also, I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, food has a very close link to desire, Right? You know, some of you already are looking at your watches wondering how soon it is till lunchtime. You know, that is, that is where your desire is. Your desire is for me to wrap things up so you can get out to eat. It'll come. You know, as Pastor Tim would say, don't start timing me yet. Okay? But, so there's this link between food and desire. So there's even this idea that maybe Daniel wasn't wanting to become intoxicated with and, and desire the things of this new world that he's in. And so he's not giving into those. You know, he's, he's not wanting to let that desire rule his life. And so he comes up with this, this challenge, this plan. You know, like I said, let me eat, you know, just, you know, vegetables, go vegetarian diet and just drink water. And after 10 days, we'll see how it shakes out. And God proves faithful and he and his friends actually look healthier and better than the ones who ate, you know, all the, you know, pulled pork and, you know, drank all the wine and all that stuff. They had everything they wanted there. And so it works out, but it was this challenge to try and change their very identity. And we can, I think we can identify that in our world. Our world loves labels. 
right? Our world loves labels, especially as labels pertain to this idea of us versus them. And we see this so much. Just spend any time looking on a Facebook news feed and you see this play out. I'm right, you're wrong. Here's 10 memes and three other posts and, you know, all these articles and blogs or whatever to prove that. And both sides just going at each other. Right? We love labels. But the question in all of this is where do we find our identity? In the book Embracing Exile, T. Scott Daniels asks this, puts it this way. We all act out of who we believe ourselves to be. That's why the question of identity is so important. We act out of who we believe ourselves to be. So the question is, who are we? You know, what, who do we belong to or identify with? What we group defines our identity? And ultimately, I believe our identity should be in Christ and Christ alone. You know, 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, you are a chosen generation. You are a people belonging to God who will call forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is who we are, a people belonging to God who are meant to be light in the darkness. So when we come to culture, when culture tries and change our identity, I think we need to rely, like Paul said in Romans 12, too, to not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, to not let the, the world shape us and mold us and, and form us into its image, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus, to let God shape our identity and to follow him and what he has to say. So we engage culture, but aren't shaped by it. Because we need to realize our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, that we are the people of God. And so we live by those values and ideals over and above any other culture we find ourselves in, because the two will inevitably come into conflict. Now, more than just identity, there's also this, this pull and this, this, this drive of their captors to force them into idol worship, right? We see this in chapters three and six. In three, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow before this image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has made and, and the threat of the fiery furnace. And in Daniel, it's the, the law that is made to only pray to the king for 30 days. And anyone who disobeys that is thrown into a den of lions. And so there's this, this temptation of idolatry. And what's interesting to me is as I studied this, the idolatry isn't, isn't really about worshiping those gods. It isn't really about worshiping the idols. It's about pledging their allegiance and devotion and worship to the king. You know, when Nebuchadnezzar builds this idol and says, all right, everyone worship this, to deny, to do that is to defy the king and to say, I don't worship you. You know, it's, it's this idea of allegiance to the kings. And the thing about idols is that it, they really are just about worshiping anything other than God. 
you know, to trust in anything above God, to put anything in the place that only God should have. That's why when Nebuchadnezzar, when he's challenging Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he's saying, you know, hey, so when this music starts, you're going to bow. Otherwise, I'm going to throw you in this fiery furnace. And then he says, then what God would be able to save you from my hand? He's basically, you know, throwing down the glove. Saying like, all right, you believe in your God. I'll kill you. Then who's going to save you? Who's going to stop me from killing you? And so there's, there's this claiming of absolute power and authority that belongs only to God. And, and these idols act as substitutes for God where they promote the creation above the creator, where Nebuchadnezzar try, is trying to place himself as the ultimate authority. And even if it's not kings or you know, rulers or anything like that, anything in our lives can become an idol when we elevate it to a place above God. When we try to find meaning in something apart from our meaning and worth in God, that thing for us becomes an idol. But going back to this idea, we have this confrontation set up between basically the, the kingdom, the state, and God, and how the kings and rulers of the world want allegiance and even worship and will try to convince us that they are the only ones who can save us. But we need to remember that God is God alone. As Jim Edlin said in his commentary in the book of Daniel, being under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar does not be, mean being out of the hand of God. This world might be trying to say, I've got you right where I want you. Who's going to save you from my hand? But being in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar does not mean you are ever out of the hand of God. God is God alone. Kings and kingdoms, presidents and politicians come and go, but God's kingdom remains forever. In chapter 2, and Daniel, you know, interprets this vision, this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. It's about this statue that has all these different parts of it that represent different kingdoms. And at the end of it, this giant rock is, is cut from a mountainside and crushes the statue and then grows into this mountain filling the whole earth. And that represents the kingdom of God. And what's interesting about that is that it crushes the statue all at once. It doesn't wait until a particular moment in time, but the kingdom of God is breaking into our world every moment of every day. God is present. This isn't some future hope that we have to wait for, but we can recognize that God is here now, active in our world and in our lives to declare himself as the one true God. And so recognizing God alone can save in Daniel 3, 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
they are willing to stake their lives on that truth that God's kingdom is forever, that God alone is sovereign and God is in control. And I think that has profound implications for our lives as we live in our world today and especially considering this as an election year. Because campaigns will try and convince you that their candidate, that their party, that their person is your only hope. They're going to try and convince you that where you need to put your faith and trust is in them. In what they can do for you and all the promises that they make. But again, reading from Embracing Exile, and he's speaking about the last election. He says, this election was not the election of our president. The church doesn't have a president. America has a president. But the church proclaims that the world has only one true Lord and ruler over creation. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, is Lord of the church no matter who lives in the White House. We would do well to remember that, church, in this coming year, that no matter what happens, we have one Lord and ruler. We belong to the kingdom of God, and Jesus alone is our Lord and Savior. Well, the next thing that we can learn from these, these exiles about how to live faithfully is always seeking God in prayer because it makes sense to follow that if God is sovereign and ruler of all, then he's the one that we should pray to, right? If he is the one over all, then he's the one we go to for help. And we see this in Daniel 6.10 where Daniel, he gets down on his knees and prays, giving thanks to his God just as he, as he had done before. And this prayer, this act of prayer, this act of seeking God for help is really kind of countercultural, right? Because we're taught to stand on our own two feet. We're taught to be independent, to lean on our own strength. You know, prayer is admitting that you can't do it. And we see that in, in Daniel, like in chapter two, when these other advisors to the king are, the king's saying like, hey, tell me my dream you know, they're trying to say, no, you tell us the dream and we'll interpret it because we can do that. We've got the wisdom and the knowledge to do that. We're able to do that. But what you're asking for is the impossible. No one can tell you the dream you've had. They're trying to rely on their own strength and their own ability. But Daniel recognizes that this only comes from God and he humbles himself and prays to God for help. And it's interesting, too, because this prayer is a way of life. This doesn't just happen when things are hard. But if you notice, it says here that he was giving thanks to his God. He, he was praying and giving thanks to God just as he had done before. This was not anything new that all of a sudden the king comes against Daniel or he makes this, this edict saying like, hey, you can only pray to the king. And Daniel's like, well, shoot, I better start praying to God. He's always been doing this. I firmly believe that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to stand up to King Nebuchadnezzar because they had a healthy prayer life. In fact, in chapter 2, when Daniel asked the king to give him some time to, to seek out God, he goes and he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he, he says, we need to pray that God would have mercy on us 
and reveal this answer. And in that, we we see prayer as submission to God's authority, to his rule, to his reign, because God is free to do what God wants and what God wills. And so we can pray in faith and expectation, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're standing before the king, are saying, God is able and God will save us from the fiery furnace. There's that hope and that faith and that expectation that yes, God is able and God will answer this prayer. But at the same time, there's that submission to the will of God where they say, but even if he does not. And notice it's not that they say, even if he cannot. They're not saying that God is incapable or that God isn't powerful enough to. They're just simply saying, even if God, because he is God and can do as he wills, even if he chooses not to save us, we still know that and trust and believe and have faith that he alone is God. And you see this in their prayer in chapter two when Daniel goes to them, they pray for mercy. They pray humbly knowing God and his mercy has to choose to reveal this answer to us. We cannot come to him entitled and proud and say, God, you owe me this. God, you have to step in here. God, you must do this. It is a prayer of humility and submission to the will of God as sovereign and just saying, God, have mercy. And in recognizing that God will that this is up to God and recognizing God's sovereignty, we also have to realize that God may answer differently than we want to. That it is completely up to him and they don't expect God to answer them in the way that they they should. And I think we see this in the, the story of the fiery furnace where God doesn't, you know, change Nebuchadnezzar's mind and be like, okay, I'm not throwing you in. You guys had moxie. I like that. You know, we're gonna promote you. You know, he doesn't have this sudden rainstorm come in and quench the fires before they can be thrown in. He doesn't do anything miraculous like that. He saves them in the midst of the fire. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, I'd want to be saved before I'm thrown in, right? That's a little bit of stress I don't need. You know, as I'm falling into that fire, I'm just like, well, it's been a good ride. You know, I don't need that kind of stress, you know, but sometimes, man, God knows what we need better than we do ourselves. And it is through that fire, in the midst of fire, when God comes alongside, when God steps into the fire with us, and his presence makes that difference and walks that journey with us, that our faith is refined. That we are taken to a whole nother level of relationship with him. We need to trust in God's power and wisdom. We need to trust that if God is sovereign and that if he is the one that we pray to, that then it stands to say that when he does answer, we need to trust in his wisdom and power to do what is right. You know, in Daniel 2.20, when Daniel has received his answer, when God has given him the dream and its interpretation, and done the impossible for Daniel. Daniel prays, praises his name. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And when Daniel goes to the king and tells him his interpretation, he never once says, hey, I figured it out. He always says unconditionally, this is impossible for man, but God revealed this to me. 
He gives credit to God 100%. He's saying, I didn't do this. This is all God. Because pride is just so dangerous. And we see this in the lives of the kings in these stories where all throughout, they're just always prideful. They're always setting themselves up against God. They're always saying like, hey, I'm, I'm in charge. Look at my power. Look at my strength. Look at my might. Look what I can do. And God comes in and says, no. When Nebuchadnezzar says, who can save you from my hand? God says, me. I got this. When Nebuchadnezzar becomes so proud to where he almost is elevating himself in his mind to God's like status that God sends him out into the wilderness like an animal. When King Belshazzar comes after Nebuchadnezzar and is celebrating in a party with holy plates and goblets and utensils and things from the temple and basically just throwing that in God's face, God comes in and humbles him. But we see the opposite in Daniel and his companions where they humble themselves before God, recognizing God's sovereignty and and just trusting that the God who brings the proud low is also the God who raises up the humble. An underlying theme to this whole book that is our next point is to remember God's love and grace. Now, while those things aren't necessarily overtly mentioned, there's not a verse that you can say, yep, here's God's love and grace. It's the underlying theme of the whole book because the whole reason that Daniel and his friends are in exile is because of the unfaithfulness of the Jews. For years, they worshiped other idols. They were captivated by cultures around them. They, they turned their backs on God. And so God comes and, and they're taken into exile. But in the midst of that, Daniel and his friends are proof of God's love and grace. They're, they're that message of hope that says, I haven't forgotten you. I'm still God and I'm still here. And I'm still staying faithful to you. And so they can live not in fear of their surroundings, but in hope that God is for them and not against them. And that God's kingdom is forever. And lastly, I think the, the, the lesson we can learn from them is that faith and obedience are powerful witnesses. That having faith and obedience in the midst of hard times, in the midst of trials, can be a powerful witness to the world around us. That we know that time and time again, God uses these trials in our lives to strengthen our faith, to take us deeper with him, where we can remember that God's greatest work, the work of salvation, came through the suffering on the cross. We can remember that in our hard times. And if we remain faithful and obedient, we know that God can use that to be a witness to the world around us. And we see that in these stories where time after time, because of their faithfulness and obedience to God, when God saves them, when they come out on the other side, the kings recognize God's power. Now, not one of them really has this conversion moment where they turn their backs on all their idols, but they at least recognize who God is. 
And in chapter 6, verses 26 through 27, it says this. This is King Darius after Daniel has been saved from the den of lions. He says, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And the other kings in the story, King Nebuchadnezzar in a couple of moments makes these similar kinds of declarations. There's just this recognition that Yes, the God of of Daniel and of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego is the living God, God most high, God over heaven and earth. And while it's not a full conversion, there's at least this witness to the power and glory of God. Psalm 98, 2 and 3 says, The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And the other side of this too is that their faithfulness and obedience and living for God also kind of, they, they influence how they live their lives in the culture. They live their lives with excellence. They live their lives in a way that they worked for the good of their captors. You know, it says that God blessed them with wisdom and knowledge. And, you know, Daniel was working so hard and he was seen to be, a, you know, so much wiser and better than all the other governors. And so they keep being elevated to these positions of power in the world. They're working with ex- excellence and doing whatever they do as if for the Lord. And they lived with integrity. When Daniel in chapter 6, when his captors are, are getting angry at this, this guy, this, this Jew, this, this exile is being promoted to positions that they wanted, they start looking for how can we trap him? How can we, you know, accuse him of something? And they can't find anything. He's completely, tr- just he is full of integrity and character that they can't find any corruption in him. And in his public life, matches up with his private life when the only thing they can find is his devotion to God. And so he stays devoted to God and praying and stays the same man of character and integrity. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 puts it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our lives can be a powerful witness to others. So where does that leave us? I think we can look at this a couple of different ways as, as how it impacts us as the church, as the people of God, because I be- firmly believe that this life of faith is meant to be lived out in community. You know, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. We're in this together, and so there are implications for the church. Right? And, and again, I'm going to pull some, some inspiration, some thoughts from the book Embracing Exile. And those of you who are in small groups or, or lead small groups in the church, it's a great book uh, for a small group study. There are resources out there. Uh, it really would be worth your time. But some of the implications for the church are, one, we, we are called to embody the word, to live as Jesus lived. You know, that our call for the church is just to be itself, 
to be Jesus. We're called to to have an open table, that the church isn't a place we go. It's something by God's grace we are becoming as we welcome those around us. And as we trust in the Spirit to bring people of all different generations and and backgrounds and ethnicities and and political views and, and whatever brings us all together to unify us as one body. And we are called to be holy, to be different, to be set apart, to be something the world can't offer. And so God transforms us by his spirit and, and makes us into this body that is set apart. And we do that too by practicing things that, that tell our story. You know, things like setting aside a Sunday morning time what you could be spending doing other things that the world would deem more worthwhile you set that time aside to focus on God that's not just part of it but to be different to be holy but also to have dirty hands that just as the church gathers for worship we are just as well sent out into the world to be salt and light And that the call of the church is not to make the world a better place to live, but the call is to become a community, faithfully witnessing to and extending by faith the kind of life made possible only through the death and resurrection of God's Son. Where we live so differently that people recognize that in us and realize that this this isn't just a social club. This isn't just, you know, a something that's going to just try and and make people happier or whatever, but that this is about life change and joining a new way to be human, a new humanity, a new creation, as the kingdom of God breaks into this world. The implications for us personally... think are are best pointed out in asking yourself this question. Have you surrendered the kingdom of your heart to God? Because it's only natural that if we say that God is sovereign over all, if he is over all creation, over every kingdom of this world, is he sovereign over the kingdom of my heart? Have I surrendered the kingdom of my heart to God? In Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel, who also lived and and was a prophet in the time of the exile, puts it this way, that God is going to bring his people back, not for their sake, but for his sake, for his name, for his glory, but he's going to bring his people back and give them a new heart, one not of stone, but of flesh, and he's going to put his spirit in them. And that is, that is the call for our lives, that as God comes in with his spirit, that we are giving a new heart. We are given a new spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living in us, purifying us and cleansing us, giving us new life. So we not only recognize God's sovereignty in the world, but his sovereignty in our lives and that God is over every kingdom, including the one in our heart and that we let his perfect love so fill us 
as we surrender completely to his rule and reign in our lives. We let his love and his spirit fill us to the point that it drives out all fear in our lives because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and because we know whose we are and where our citizenship truly lies. Where we can know that God is with us no matter what. Where we can trust in him and rest in the assurance of our salvation. To know that our sins are forgiven. To know that he will never leave us or forsake us. To know that he is with us to the very end of the age. To know that any trial or temptation we face, we can overcome because God is with us. Where his presence makes all the difference in the world. Where his presence makes all the difference in our world. Will you stand with me? I don't know where you find yourselves today. Maybe for some of you watching online or here in in the sanctuary, maybe for for you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. As I'm talking about this, you you know that you are 100% just both feet in culture. You're checking out this Jesus thing. You've heard of him but you don't know what that looks like. You don't know what that means to experience his love and forgiveness in your life. But as I talk about this this new way to be human, this living differently, that there's something more out there than what culture has to offer, that you can put your hope and your faith in something else, that that tugs at you a little bit. That's, That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. You know, I don't know if if you're here and you've accepted Jesus into your life, but you've still got one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You're still holding on to things. You're forgiven and, and you have this new life, but you're still holding on to things that pull you back. Where God is saying, will you step out and give me complete control in your life? Will you surrender your heart 100% to me? Will you give all of yourself to me so I can in turn give all of myself to you? Or maybe you've already made that decision. Maybe you've already said, you know what? I have surrendered my whole life to God, but I needed this reminder. I might need a refill of the Holy Spirit. I don't know where you find yourself today, but I do know this, that God is God. No matter what's happening out there, no matter what fears the world tries to throw at you, he can meet you where you are today. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for the truth that you are still on your throne, that your kingdom continually breaks into our world and tells us that you alone are God, that you alone are our salvation. You are the one who is worthy of our hope and our faith and our trust, and we can trust in your power and wisdom. God, I pray for everyone here, God. You know their hearts, you know where they are. God, I know that because of of circumstances, we can't have them come down and pray at an altar, but God, you can meet them right where they are. So God, those who don't know you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be speaking to them, that you would be speaking to them and whispering into their hearts about this new life and this new way to live and this new community that they can be a part of and this new family and, and this newfound hope that they can have because of your grace, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. 
that they would confess their need for you and ask forgiveness and experience the new life that only you can give. God, for those that have done that step but, but still need to be filled with your spirit, God, I pray that you would meet them where they are, that they would be willing to lay down any idols that they're still holding on to, anything that they're keeping back from you, God, that they would just release in total surrender, that they would let go of these things and, and recognize your sovereign rule and reign in their hearts and in their lives. And as they give all of themselves to you and make that decision to, to always say yes to your will and to your way, that you would fill them with your spirit. And God, for those that need to be reminded of these truths, those who have given themselves completely to you, but, but maybe need a refill, need a refreshing, need a reminding that you are still in control because of situations can distract them and weigh on them and, and just weigh them down. God, I pray that you would lift them up, that you would again refill them with your Holy Spirit and refresh their commitment to you. Because God, no matter where we find ourselves, we know that you are the God who is with us in the fire. That whatever we face, you stand by our side and walk this journey with us and call us always to the next step. And that we don't have anything to fear. Because as it says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who could stand in the face of God? Lord, as we sing this last song, may your spirit work in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.